Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. Madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? They don't need us to kick them around the place. You could say it so much. The police get riot here with Trump. I am ashamed to call myself a European. The recognition of Guaido. Unelected gobshite is an absolute embarrassment. Now, you did use the word gobshite, so uh, I would re- reprimand you over that. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Foresee Trouble. Today we're back in Brussels and it's been a busy week with lots of different committee stuff. Um, No unifying theme really for this episode, but there's a couple of things that I know the two of you wanted to touch on, Mick and Claire. Um, There was the question of a a few things in the Civil Liberties Committee around policing, um, migrant workers, uh, various things in that regard. Then I know there was some environmental committee stuff, Mick, as well as the usual security and defence, questions about foreign interference. Um, so, Claire, do you want to... I mean, as you say, it's totally messy. And why do they put these committees all on at the same time? So you kind of run in and out of bits of them and it's a little yeah. bit uh, eclectic. But I don't know if you find your week that one a bit like yeah, that. Yeah, it was mad as well. But, I mean, there's actually a reason why... Um, they clash sometimes because it's impossible to find enough time and theatres, despite the fact that there's so many of them, but there are just so many committees on that uh, it would be physically impossible for them not to have them clashing. Uh, so what were the, the big themes that came out of this week for you, Mick? Well, um, well, this morning, for example, um, we were discussing... Uh, Sinkovich, the commissioner was in, mm-hmm. right? In the and Environment Committee. At, at the Environment Committee, yeah. yeah, right? And it was about the Green Claims Directive proposal. Now, you might say, well, what the hell is that, right? Well, anyway, it's a proposal that's going to um, sort of manage, uh, it's supposed to tackle greenwashing, right? And it's where companies uh, make green claims, mm-hmm. like like put the label on their bottles or on their packaging or whatever, or on their car or whatever, right? And it's it's about making them honest and accountable for what they're saying, right? So, I mean, I suppose just to give you an idea of the kind of questions that I asked him about, just to give you an idea of where I, where I was coming from on it, right? I mean, I pointed out that the proposal doesn't require the companies to make green claims have climate action plans, right? Which is a bit disappointing uh, from our perspective, right? Now, the proposal refers to the need for companies to focus on emissions reductions, but there's no binding requirement to actually achieve specific emission reduction. Now, I mean, when things are not binding, right? I mean, it's, it's like the difference between soft law and, and, and firm law, right? Uh, it, it's... Things need to be binding if you want to make things happen, really, right? But, I mean, look at... Uh, 
the another there's a couple of other things as well, but I'm, I don't want to be boring people too much. With it, it is quite boring the environment. <laughs> I know, isn't it? I know, and that's no disrespect to you, and it's it's a real kind of sad thing like that. Um, it's such it's the problem of our age, but it's very hard to get people to engage on the details. Obviously, young people are totally on the page. And one of the highlights, I suppose, of this week was we had two schools over again. Uh, Benevan College in Finglas and Donna Bay Community College were over on a visit this week, which was great because all of these visits we have, young people are definitely on the page uh, in terms of dealing with the environment. But the details of all and of those files are incredibly boring. And when we're, t- when we're talking to the groups that come over, the young students, right? Mm. If we don't bring up the environment early in the discussions, they do. They're actually wanting to talk well, about Well, and they're dead wide, like, to all the greenwashing and all yeah. the scams that are on board. They're fully on the page on that. Now, I mean, let, let me just touch on some of the the environment stuff that, that maybe you'll, you'll find a little bit more interesting, a little bit more down to earth, right? Uh, we'll see. A, we'll give, see. Give, okay, give, we'll give me give a second. You, right? We'll give you a, a second to see right. whether that's true or I, not. Um, this was about carbon farming, right? Now, carbon farming is going to be a big issue, right? Um, but... I was pointing out that the family farm model is absolutely vital to the future of agriculture and rural communities in Ireland and all across Europe, right? Now, the number of family farms in the EU, I mean, or right across the EU, it decreased by 20% from 2005 to 2016 alone. Now, I've often pointed out that Ireland has lost over 100,000 family farms since 1970. And that's a direct result of government policy at home and EU policy, right? So uh, I pointed out when I was speaking that we were concerned that a market-based carbon farming model will increase the concentration of the financialization of land and the dependence of agricultural income on speculative and often volatile carbon markets, right? Uh, so we, we expressed our concern that access to land for smallholders and young farmers is going to become more expensive, right? And... So and, and I pointed out that recently, for example, you see, big people now, in, investment funds are starting to buy land in order to, uh, to invest in uh, carbon credits, right? Like the investment fund from Britain, Gresham House, they have to buy an, an absolute load of land from Quilta. And they say, well, these guys are not interested in forestry, right? What are they up to? And... It's it's really preparing for uh, carbon the, the the days when carbon credits are going to be all this is going to be registered and in place, and it's going to be big money for some people. So what we have now is uh, we're bringing in uh, policies at the European level, which which are recommended and are good, but we're we're putting a, a smaller farm holdings at serious mm. risk. And that's already been happening in Ireland for years where big dairy and big beef, which gets most of the money from CAP, has been buying up small farm uh, family holdings, right? And, and there's, there's a small family farm disappearing every day in Ireland, right? And this now could even accelerate it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, this, the fact that uh, Gresham House, the, the British Investment Fund, bought all this land from Quilta, and they have seemingly the opportunity to buy up to a, a maximum, I think, of 123,000 acres of land. That's, I, they haven't bought that much yet, but they're able to buy it, right? Now, this is crazy. Quilta is a state body, right? It's a semi-state body, we call it, right? Now, 
I'd say the Irish uh, are sick of hearing what's state and what isn't. And the government love to say, oh, it's a semi-state body. They, they look after their own books. Uh, they wash their own face, make, make their own ends meet. We can't tell them what to do. But in actual fact, we should be telling them what to do. They had the same excuse when, the, when on post were closing post offices. Oh, they're, they're a, a semi-state body. We can't tell them what to do. You could tell them what to do if you wanted to tell them what to do. Right? That they're able to tell some people what to do when it suits them. And they just sit back and don't when they don't, when they don't feel like it and it doesn't suit them. What are you laughing at? <laughs> I'm thinking, well, A, this, that was the longest second I've ever spent <laughs> in my life. B, is the environment exciting? Well, the end, it was getting exciting there when we were into Quilta and uh, the Irish government telling people what to do. But well, carbon I have, farming, I have... will it be sexy? I'm not sure. <laughs> but it is very important and... It is somewhat tragic that we are not really able to I, engage, get people excited about the details. Okay, I have, I have another one, but I, I better give it a miss, right? Because uh, you're right, it is hard to make the environmental issues sexy. But at the same time, they're incredibly important. Well, I, I'm much more... And, and, I, and in fact, I would actually think that you're a little bit cynical about a lot of it, you know? Would you? Yeah. yeah. Now, it looks like I'm, I'm frustrated with it, but I'm not cynical about it, okay? And I think that it's the most important thing that's happening. The, the, the fucking, uh, we have a massive climate crisis, and they reckon that by 2050, we were going to have 1.2 billion climate change refugees. 1.2 billion will have no home, they reckon. Mm. Well, 1.2 billion think yeah. about it and listen anyway I totally agree but there is a huge problem in making this accessible to people in the manner in which it is dealt with and that is something that we will have to overcome I suppose I was lucky that uh, my uh, work this week was a bit more sexier in fairness because maybe it's just I'm old fashioned but I got the thrill of going to uh, the 100th anniversary uh, meeting of Interpol uh, so bring us back to the old days of James Bond and, that and was all sexy, that was kind it? of thing. It was by comparison to where you were at, pal. I can tell you, it was cosmic. But um, no, look, it was really good. Interpol, who are based in Lyon in in France, they are the police global police cooperation outfit. Anybody who watched the film years ago uh, would have heard of Interpol. The reason why we went, I suppose, was for me, they are one of the international organisations now which are, are still truly multilateral and who have not fallen victim of the geopoliticised nature of world politics now as we see in international institutions. We saw that most clearly, I think, in the last week with the unbelievable decision of the International Criminal Court to label Vladimir Putin and issue a, a warrant for him as a, as a war criminal. Not that I'm saying whether he is or he isn't. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but, certainly, but certainly in the context of the war, the established war criminals of Bush and Blair and the like who've been on the run for years, it looks very bad. We actually managed to discuss that with Interpol yesterday as well. But look, they're an organisation that started 100 years ago for police cooperation. Uh, people would know of them, the sort of wanted persons, red alerts, that kind of thing. But they started off with 20 countries and there's now 195 countries in it. It's the big issues of sort of, you know, um, foreign fighters, terrorist fighters, uh, works of art being stolen, child sexual abuse, that type of stuff. So they'd be a big outfit. And uh, the European Union's link was an American guy, a former US prosecutor, a really impressive guy, Pierre Saint-Hillier was his, is his name. 
um, and he actually having worked for years as a prosecutor in the US he was one of the people who dealt with the uh, tribunals that came out of the Rwandan genocide and the whole reconciliation and justice process that came out of that which was really interesting uh, as well so yeah it was a pretty good uh, meeting the European Union obviously has Europol for exchange of police and information across Europe but Interpol is a pretty yeah Good outfit, and they were impressive people, I thought, you know. Now, just before you get away from the environment, I'm going to raise one other issue that we covered, right? And because it's actually very important for the farmers at home, right? And it also relates to the carbon credits, right? Uh, but the point I was, we were trying to make was that uh, with this proposal by the Commission, right, the regulation on carbon removals will not in itself generate carbon credits, just carbon removal certificates. And the proposal is not concerned about how the certificates are used, right? But the agricultural sector at home should be really concerned about the use of certificates, especially uh, carbon removals or credits leaving the sector, being bought up or claimed by other sectors, for example, the airline industry, right? And I, I, and I put it to the Commission that, you know, in Ireland, the agricultural sector has been set a target of 25% emissions reduction by 2030. That's a huge challenge, right? And as part of Ireland's climate, uh, as part of Ireland's climate action plan, right? Now, if carbon is removed via carbon farming and is sold as carbon credits, for example, to Ryanair or to a data centre, Presumably, the emissions reductions leave the agriculture sector, right? So, we, so otherwise, why would an airline or a data centre buy a carbon credit unless it can use it to offset its own emissions, right? But the, the problem is, uh, if the carbon credit leaves the agriculture sector, by, if they sell it, right, well, then it actually adds to the challenge of Ireland meeting its, its 25% target by 2030. I mean, so... Otherwise, you're double counting. And I asked the Commission about that, and they kind of they, they clarified that they, they can't actually just go and sell it out of the system and then get the credit for of, of, as it being part of their reductions as well. So in other words, they have to kind of bank it as part of their reductions. Uh, but if they sell it, then it leaves that area and it makes it more onerous for, uh, for other sections of, of the farming industry at home to actually meet the target. And I, I, mm -hmm. that's really significant. And p people, even it mightn't sound sexy either, right? But it's a big issue for the farmers at home. And uh, it's something that, that the government needs to watch. Well, it's interesting that Mick raised the aviation issue there in terms of the environment, because another meeting I had this week was actually with the Irish Road Hauliers Association, um, who are pretty impressive outfit. And they actually have... Uh, managed to keep the Irish industry going to a certain extent, reliant on a lot of labour from Eastern Europe and so on. But by comparison with the problems in Britain, it's uh, pretty immense. But one of the issues that they were uh, mentioning was the sort of preferential treatment given to aviation, where there's a lot of pressure being put on the um, haulage industry to convert to green energy and so on. But for them to do that, they need assistance to do that because it's going to cost a lot of money converting trucks. It means trucks are going to cost anything up to about 500,000 now, whereas previously they were about 200,000. So it's an awful lot of extra money and there is supposed to be some support there. Now, supports were given when the war started, there was a special fund of about 18 million, but some of that has been clawed back now with the initial softening of the 
increases in energy prices in petrol and diesel and not just on hauliers but everybody that's been clawed back by the government so uh, it's been eaten in on that but one of the interesting things about them and it ties into the whole migration issue and in a very real way was the total scarcity of workers in the sector and they're going to be short about a million people um, across the EU over the next uh, 10 years or so because of lads retiring it's a very hard job um, and they need to do something about that. But isn't that a brilliant example of the point that we've made about how we need to be providing safe pathways for migrants to come in and work? They actually have Irish lads out in Georgia at the moment training uh, and trying to upskill people to get them in from Georgia. And seemingly there are a lot of Georgian workers in the construction industry in Ireland, but actually the haulage industry. And it was something we did a conference with them a number of years ago on that to push the Irish government to give... Um, uh, um, visas and uh, safe, you know, uh, the ability to come and, and work in Ireland in that industry where there's such an obvious shortfall. So interesting, uh, guys, a lot of work around licensing and stuff like that. But they're a powerful lobbying group, actually, in terms of uh, getting their message across. Yeah, and very necessary to keep Europe kind of functioning and keep trade. Well, they're one of the interesting things stuff. they make is the exception of Ireland as an island economy. Yeah. And actually, the, the Irish government don't like that term. They don't like to call us an island economy economy because of you know the north and the link with the UK but like of course we are an island something surrounded by water and there's us and Malta and Cyprus and that's it and there has to be special rules uh, for that in terms of workers rights and allowances and all of that as well but no interesting stuff and fair play to lads for coming over. Yeah no definitely and it ties back to the thing that Mick was saying in terms of uh, you know that really huge arguments in favour of more open borders, more welcome reception for migrants, the fact that there's going to be so many climate refugees, that combined with the fact that we're short on workers in lots of key sectors, it's just a really good argument in favour of letting more people into Europe. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah 100%. So we just one other thing before we go. Um, I know that you also had to talk about some security and defence things. In particular, there was a security and defence conference it was called the Schumann Security and Defence Partnership Forum. Now, the idea of probably setting this up was uh, linked to the fact that uh, over 80% of the pop countries that, that have over 80% of the world's people have refused to back the EU and the Americans uh, in their warmongering. Uh, and the Europeans are kind of panicking that they're losing... Uh, so much support around the world and they're actually isolating themselves. I mean, they're forever telling us how unified they have been in dealing with the war, but uh, they're not so unified with anyone outside the EU and uh, it's a real problem for them. So uh, this conference was set up and a whole lot of the African countries in particular were invited to it. It was about 27 mm -hmm. different African countries invited, right? And But listening to Burrell, I mean... Uh, it was a bit. It's a bit shocking at this stage that they've really learned nothing, and uh, so he was talking about, um, for example, uh, w he says we cannot uh, alone deal with the, the challenges of the weakening of multilateralism. But I mean, the EU itself is guilty of abandoning multilateralism. Um, so it's it's there's an awful lot of. Uh, contradictions in, in what, what, what uh, he, he's saying he is, right? Now, uh, he was on about the fact that 
about values, right, again, right? And he says, oh, we share the same values, he was saying to the Africans, right? But maybe we don't share the same priorities, he said. And you don't, and he says to the Africans, you don't take our priorities enough into your attention, he says. No, I mean, we're still lecturing them. We're still not listening to them. We need to listen to these people and hear what they have to say. They're not siding with Russia in the war. They're siding with peace. The same as myself and Claire have been doing since the start of the war. Right? But they're being, because they're not uh, uh, joining uh, the war party, um, they're being accused of taking Russia's side. The same as the mainstream media has done that to us. But I mean, listen to Burrell lecturing these Africans. Uh, I, I just find it hard to take, you know. And he's, he talks about then about drawing lessons from the challenges that they faced in Central African Republic and in Mali. And he says that what we found out was our, our missions were not sufficiently backed by an effort to equip our partners. I mean, they can't get away from the, the, the military perspective. They can't accept the fact that they'd have been far more uh, effective if they invested in infrastructure in these countries, uh, helped to uh, improve health and education facilities, uh, capacity for, for people to get jobs so they don't have to leave their own area, and uh, introduce economic measures that, uh, instead of us uh, robbing the place blind, maybe we'd help them to thrive instead and support them rather than rob them. But I mean, we're just not learning the lessons. But there was a, it was a massive conference. There wasn't. It was it was held in in, a, in one of the theaters where there's about five hundred seats. I'd say there was another two hundred standing. Place was jammers. But there was nothing new being said. Which well, was, they're a bit mad, and I mean, I couldn't go to that because at the same time, the Foreign Interference Committee had a, a meeting on. They had members of the national parliaments over to talk about, you know, the threat of foreign interference again uh, with the upcoming elections. But we had a meeting on our report that we're preparing, which I'm the shadow for before that. And right enough, the colleagues were coming in again about this impact of the war on Africa and how it just wasn't on, that these people are sucking up the foreign uh, lies from Russia. And they're, I mean, for God's sake, it's kind of nearly like parents splitting up, isn't it? And each kid, try, each parent trying to bribe the kids, like, you know, mm -hmm. so Putin's going in and giving loads of cut deals on uh, gas and, and all Europe can go in and give is lectures and talk down to them and tell them that they're not sufficiently high values, like for fact sake like you know it's no surprise for which parent is going to win that uh, yeah. contest fairly patronising well, yeah desperate but what I found really scary as well right after Burrell speaking right we had the permanent representative to NATO from the US you want to listen to her right and I've just picked out two lines that you said right I think there's no question that we're going to look back on 2022 and 2023 as a very pivotal moment for the European Union as it relates specifically to security and defence issues. And the US applauds all of these developments. So in, in, in other words, the US is applauding the fact that we're supporting a US-NATO proxy war 100%. And then she goes on to say, on the NATO-EU front, plenty to applaud and celebrate there. We have a new third joint declaration, which we spoke about last week, which was a major turning point and a step forward for the relationship. Well, I mean, it was a turning point, a turning point of darkness for the EU as far as I'm concerned. Well, it's, it is, again, it's the contrast, isn't it? China and Russia have their summit or whatever the heads of state government meet last week. And meanwhile, really, the rest of the world is kind of looking to them. And meanwhile, all the US have is kind of Europe, a Europe that's on its knees. And OK, they're maybe giving a bit of lifeblood to 
the US, but in terms of the impact on the EU itself, it's devastating. And just a point that Mick touched on that I just wanted to mention was, you know, about the, the, this lecture and about values, which we often pinpoint the double standards hypocrisy of that. But one of the interesting cases that we managed to get on the agenda for an upcoming um, Libe committee meeting is the case of Pablo Gonzalez, who is a Basque journalist who's actually been in prison in Poland for over a year now in solitary confinement on the basis of an allegation that he is a Russian spy. He was actually a journalist who was in covering uh, the war in Ukraine, by all accounts, a very reputable journalist. His case has been taken up by conservative organisations like Amnesty International, uh, Reporters Without Borders and International Federation of Journalists, all of whom say he should be uh, released. He's been in pre-trial detention in solitary confinement for over a year, very limited legal rights and so on. And we're, uh, it's, it's a horrific situation, but I had to do a battle to get it onto the agenda because the Polish representatives were saying about how great conditions were in Polish prisons and saying, well, he is guilty now. We all know he's guilty and he, he did this and he did that. And I'm kind of going, well, sorry, love now, but for starters, he hasn't been convicted of anything yet. Uh, so if you know something, the courts don't know that. Uh, innocent till proven guilty and all of that. But also... That doesn't really matter what he's been charged with. Even if he is guilty, human rights and prison conditions and fundamental rights have to be made available to all. Even somebody who even he alleged heinous crime, even if he was guilty of that, he's still entitled to have his human rights violated and torture and inhumane uh, treatment is actually not allowed. But some of our Polish friends don't clearly uh, realise mm. that. But it's a really sad case, an important case. And yeah. we don't have time today, but there were a number of cases of a number of people actually who were being killed by police violence and that as well in Europe. So when we lecture Africans about values, we'd want to start looking in our own backyard first. And yeah. just on the last point I wanted to raise, uh, just speaking of... Um, the lack of tolerance for an alternative view uh, around all this uh, subject. Um, we, we had a security and defence um, session on the joint defence procurement, right? And um, I'm, I'm the shadow on that for um, Foreign Affairs and AFIT. Uh, 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 Mark Potenga, the Belgian guy, uh, who's a really good guy, he, he's on it for each, I think. But because it's a giant one, right? But we put in 19 amendments and not one of them were considered in the compromise amendments. So they literally just binned everything that we offered. And I decided, can, can I just read one of them out to you as I said to them, right? I said, I said, You're, this is a one-way street, I said to them. No alternative view has been tolerated by ye. You don't want to know. You just, you're just going down one track and anyone that thinks different is wrong. This is their, their approach. Uh, so I read out one amendment. It's actually Amendment 137, I think. Um, and it said, Any EU instrument should be subject to strict social conditionality, stringent ethical principles, and relevant national, European Union or international legislation, including the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union, and the Convention for the Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, and its supplementary protocols, the precautionary principle, and international humanitarian law, and when contributing to research and development, yield proportionate public ownership of intellectual property rights. So I said to him, well, what is up to that you couldn't accept that? What's going on? Mm -hmm. So Michael Gallagher is the rapporteur, right? And he came back at me and he said, 
I think every point that uh, uh, Mick Wallace raised is... Uh, well, we Taken will, into we, account. We, we, we'll adhere to all them. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think this proposal, uh, this piece of legislation is, is going to deal with all of them. So then, why did, why did they reject it then? Why did it bin it? Give me a break. I thought what was interesting as well about that was it was about joint procurement in the field of security and defence, right? And oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he talked about the fact that because national procurement was okay, then there's no objection to EU procurement, which is a big leap to make, especially in the context of the conversation about a defence union and Ireland's position and all of that. Oh, yeah. It's mean, interesting uh, that that was his reply to you. Yeah, and, and that's where we're going with all of this, right? I mean, they want a load of the EU budget money to be going to the defence industry. That's what they want. And uh, they're getting great progress on it this weather and more and more of the citizens' money, the citizens of Ireland and uh, all the countries of Europe is being funneled into the defence industry and it's shocking. Mm. Yeah. Well, so at least there seems to be a bit of a, a turning in a demand for peace and a bit more open to discussion in that regard. Not enough, but at least that's beginning to turn as well. All right, so I think that's all we have time for this week. It's been a bit of a hodgepodge. Um, until next week. All the best. Bye-bye. Riva yeah.